Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Hey guys, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jen. And And you're you're listening listening to Fathomless. starting something very exciting that has been in the works and pretty much since we started this damn podcast yeah yeah Um, take it away amanda it's also it is uh also our year anniversary this week it is the one starting year anniversary of motherfucking fab i almost said fabulous 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 fathomless we're changing the podcast name. Yep. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Get ready for the t-shirts. There's nothing fabulous about the stories we tell. No. They're um, all fucking fathomless. But it's our one year. It is. So Can we you figured- believe we've been doing this for a year? It's crazy because I feel like it was just like three months ago that you were like, we should do a podcast. And I, I remember was like, there's no way. You. We have no audiovisual technology. And, and I just fucking- jumped on some message boards and figured some shit out. I remember and- you came to my apartment when I was still living in Middleborough and um I was like, Amanda, I have a thought. Yeah. Like, what? And I was like, I think we should start our own true crime podcast. And you were like, wait, really? And I was like, fuck yeah. I was like, there are fucking cases that nobody talks about that I want to do. And we started our podcast off with the one case that nobody talks about that I wanted to do, the, the Vanishing Men of Boston. Yeah. Um, and people love that episode. It's our first one. It's got the most listens, obviously. It's the first one. But significantly more than the other episodes. And if you are new to our podcast or you haven't listened to any of the first couple, I know when I started podcasts, I always just start with whatever one looks most interesting to me. And Same. then I work my way back because... Our audio, obviously, you all know the story of our audio. It sucked ass in the beginning. Well, like most podcasts that yeah. start from fucking grassroots. But it's a great episode, so we've got our shit mostly figured out now. So if you like us now, time to start getting into the big shit. Go and back and do it. Um, so, yeah, so our first episode, I just wanted to look back on the exact date. It came out on September 26th. September 26th? Yep, so this one will be out on the 25th. Oh, so, so a day before our very first yeah. day in a year. But one full year of Fathomless. Love it. I can't believe we have been so consistent. We've been really good. We're, I think we missed, what, maybe two weeks? It's been like three weeks. Two total. or three weeks. But there have been two times where you've, get, you've gotten a little bonus episode midweek. Yeah. So, you we know We try what? to even it out. I think, I think we've been amazing at staying consistent. and living two hours away right yeah like and also you buying a house and having a wedding all in our first year of also doing all of this recording yeah you know when I brought this up to you I was already like moving yeah I was already like pretty much out of my apartment um but we've had some plans since the beginning of what we want to do and um this is this is a subject near and dear to my heart and I'm very excited to 
to dive into. And we figured why not, you know, celebrate our one year anniversary by starting our Bridgewater Triangle series. I was like giving you the eye to like say it with me. I'm like, I'm sorry. I did not get the memo. One, two, three. Bridgewater Bridgewater Triangle series. We should have, we should have done that. We should have practiced that before, but that was good. It, you know what? It was raw. It moment, was. So. It was beautiful. It was pure. Yeah. Um. So <laughs> we are going to structure these series in a way where they're not going to really come out one after another. They may, but um, some weeks might be broken up. Yeah, we might have a rando episode, maybe kind of little things in between. Yeah, maybe just like a regular old episode. Um, but we didn't want to just like dump it all on you guys all at once because not everybody is interested i guess and not yeah. everybody knows what it is and um we're really gonna break this up into multiple parts so you can get um the history and everything and then we'll go into the bridgewater triangle and we'll break yeah. that up into different sections and get into like some personal accounts and stuff like that yeah so um but yeah, Amanda's so, gonna Amanda's gonna start this whole thing. So yeah, take so it we're away. Gonna, we're gonna get started with um, if you can't tell by the title of the episode, we are gonna talk about the Wampanoag tribe. Uh, we're gonna talk about what Massachusetts was before you know European settlers and colonists arrived and kind of fucked everything up. Uh, not even kind of, really, just fucked everything up. Only slightly. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> that laugh is painful. <laughs> oh God! Just wait. All right. Um, this episode's not going to be like super, super bad. Um, I first wanted to kind of like look into just like the Wampanoag way of life, and you know what life was like before. Um, a lot of historians call it like pre-contact, which was like before you know European settlers started showing up on their shores and you know kidnapping people and just being assholes. Um, so I wanted to kind of kind of give everybody an idea of their culture and their lifestyle, also their folklore, their spiritual way of life, you know, because they were very spiritual people and kind of like their myths and legends because they lived in this area for 12,000 years before we arrived. Mm-hmm. And you'll see different numbers everywhere. Um, I'll get into that a little bit later in the episode. but. Um, anywhere they arrived here anywhere between 12,000 and like 9,000 CE, which is a really fucking long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and to really understand, yeah, to really understand why the Bridgewater Triangle is exactly the way it is. why the Bridgewater Triangle is the way it is. And like, I, it, I'm sure a lot of people who are very much into paranormal know that, you know, things that happen in the land, a lot of negative activity can, can leave like a stain on an area and that's literally exactly that's, what the Bridgewater it's exactly Triangle is. what it is and not only that but there there are certain areas of this land that were very sacred to them and held like very very dark spirits mm-hmm. and we will get into that because they had the way that their i mean for lack of a better term their religion was kind of set up um the underworld was basically in in the water so mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna get into that a little yeah. bit later in this episode but we'll we'll get a little because i i'm sure a lot of people know that a large a very large portion of the bridgewater triangle is the hawk swamp yeah and like 
my thing is people know, oh, the Ventura Triangle, it's haunted, this happens, but they don't know why. Yes. They don't know the background. Yeah. And, and you Amanda hear... felt it was really important to yeah. have this episode as the foundation of the Bridgewater Triangle series because... You'll hear the term you'll... King Philip's War thrown around a lot when you, like, watch documentaries on the Bridgewater Triangle or you read stuff about it, and you'll hear, oh, because of King Philip's War... The Nate and like because the Europeans, you know, took this land, the natives mm-hmm. put a curse on this land. And the that's King like Philip's the big... War is a whole separate episode. That'll, yes. that'll be um, the next. It's going to be series. the next part of this episode. But there's um, even the next part a time of this before that. So. But I, when I started like diving into their history, I realized that there was so much to talk about, especially about just their way of life and their spirituality, that it it was its own episode in its own. Or else we'd be sitting here for three hours. Um, because King Philip's War is a whole, whole fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that you really never hear about. And um, I know that, I mean, I especially want to know from you, who grew up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, uh, what your elementary school and middle school and high school experience was when they talked to you about the first Thanksgiving. Because even though so, it's September, we're actually going to talk a lot about that. and it's a, it's okay if you guys did the Thanksgiving pageant with like the pilgrims and the yep, Indians. We, we did that up. as well. You th- we I don't think you can do that some anymore. Kids. Oh, absolutely not. You can't be a pilgrim or um, an Indian. You can't be a pilgrim or an Indian. And I mean, in Indian, you can't even say that. Explain anymore. why. So that they actually don't mind. I found really. Out. So um, okay, good to know. I um, one of the main historians that I'm going to talk about what in my don't research they like? is David Silverman, because um, I know. Now it's just any derogatory term. They refer to as indigenous. Yes. Right? Like indigenous Americans. Is Native usually American I, still okay? That seems to still be okay. Because Native, I say Native American. Because I heard that really like Indian is not the term so the, to use. So the reason why the Europeans called the Nate, like the indigenous people of America, Indians, is because the only other country that they had really traveled to, they thought they were in India. Oh. That's the only other place that they had really explored besides, like, they hadn't gotten to, like, so China like, or anything So they, like, they kind of look like them. And they, they did. They had that same kind of, like, the olive-toned skin and the dark hair with the dark eyes. So they just assumed that they were the same people. So that was the name given to yes. them by the settlers, but they still don't mind. So, yeah, when I was um, doing my research, I focused a lot on a historian, David Silverman, who wrote a wicked informative book called This Land is Their Land. And he focused his research on the tribes of southern New England. And there's actually a like a Zoom call speech that's like on YouTube for free that you can find if you type in the name of the book, This Land is Their Land. I'll post it on our Facebook and stuff um, and I'll put the link in the show notes. But um he was discussing how every time he went out and spoke to people of the Wampanoag tribe, a lot of them still referred to themselves as American Indians. So it didn't seem to be to them a derogatory term. I believe it's all in the context of how you're using it and obviously yeah. the tone of how you're using it. If, yeah. you're, if you're meaning it in a negative connotation, then obviously it's going gonna, it's gonna to come yeah. across as negative. But, but I've grow- seen all... Three okay. terms kind of used interchangeably. Interchangeably. Okay. So growing up in Plymouth, um, if you're not from the area, um, Plymouth, Massachusetts is known as America's hometown. The first Thanksgiving, they say. Um, and basically our education in Plymouth is, 
you know, they teach us the pilgrims came over. They wanted to escape the church and the ways of what where they were living. They came over. They landed in Plymouth and they got off and they settled and they basically I know that they pushed the Native Americans out of their land. But, you know, no, they got along and they had Thanksgiving together and la 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 and all was rainbows and magic. And then you learn that that's not what fucking happened as an adult. Yeah. Um. So as a as a child, but as a child, they're very dressed, vague on like how we get the land. I we remember up in my and history Thanksgiving, class. Um. We went to Plymouth Rock and we saw the Mayflower and we we did all the Plymouth touristy shit or field trips every single fucking year. Um. Which I love Plymouth and now that I moved away, I can really appreciate it much much more. Um, I miss being by the ocean. I love where I live now, but I it, growing up in, in an a ocean coastal town, town it's, it's a hard to vibe. move. It's... it's hard to move. And when you come back, you just appreciate it. So um, I love that I'm from Plymouth, Massachusetts. I love my hometown. I encourage everybody who's ever been to go visit because it is beautiful. Um, but the way that the land was taken over was, was not horrible. Yeah, it was not how and they portrayed it to us. Obviously, being elementary school kids, that's when they really kind of tell you the story about the pilgrims. Because yeah. That's what Plymouth has. They're like, Pilgrims oh, yeah. settled America's first town, like, America's like, hometown. Like, they think it's I feel cool. like the first, like, when we first show up in school for the first three months, it's just pictures of, like, apples, pumpkins, and belt buckle hats all over the classrooms. Yeah. At least that's how, like, even growing up in Plympton, Massachusetts, which is, like, about, or, like, what, 15, 15 minutes, minutes away even. from Plymouth? Yeah. Not even. And was at one point a part of Plymouth. Yeah. Um. It, um... Yeah, it was it was very much the same they thing. They don't we teach did. you the actual shit. They no, just, they don't. You know, and you dress up for the for the for the. It feast. was very we yeah. They were very vague school. about everything. Yeah, we had the feast and we'd sing like you know fucking like whatever I, like song. American songs like pride songs like this land is our land and shit and like that tis a gift to be simple tis a mm-hmm. gift to be free song i remember that one i can't remember how like the name of it they do it have that. i don't know if you bring this up in your research or anything at all but um there is a place in plymouth formerly known as the plymouth plantation yes it's now patuxet the plymouth patuxet museum yep. um it's basically a whole um land area of land um how, how would you describe it, it how the settlers and the Native Americans. Yeah, so they they do basically a, like an active role playing, yes. like LARPing, where the entire area is set up to be like circa 1620, the first Plymouth colony. And they also have the Wampanoag Village. And the reason why they changed the name from Plymouth Plantation to Plymouth Patuxet Museum was to make it a little bit more historically accurate. Yeah. Patuxet was the name of the Wampanoag Village that was Plymouth before the European settlers came and kind of shoved them out of the way. And today we're going to talk about, you know, what their life was like in that village beforehand and how the Europeans were able to kind of come in and shove them out of the way. Um, you know, going to get married there. Yeah. It's expensive. Yeah, my it's cousin got expensive. married there like I've... 10 years ago, but oh, pricey. Um, but beautiful. Yeah, they, it's a oh it's a beautiful God. area. If you've never been to the Plymouth Patuxet Museum, I do recommend you go. It does show that was a wonderful way spot. of how the colon colonizers lived. It also does have actual people from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe who do actually they're part of the Wampanoag village there, and they do explain that they're 
beautiful way of life and show you, you know, how their life was before the European settlers arrived, which is nice that we're able to kind of honor their culture as well. But imagine just like doing your thing and you just see this boat approaching in the distance and all these people in fucking buckle hats and shoes are all dressed funny and and they're talking funny and they're saying this is our land It's very weird. Um, And like, I know that at least I remember a lot of like, I really liked history as a child. So I do remember a lot of them talking about the first Thanksgiving and stuff like that. And I feel like when we were children, they really portray the indigenous tribes as like, like a kind of naive, like not as intelligent, underdeveloped society. And that the, like the Northeast was a like untamed vast wilderness that, you know, was filled with these wild beasts and savages and like, it was not like that at all. They were a very developed society, very developed. They had they had clear boundaries. They had rituals. They had holidays. They had they had like like multi colony like sporting events and feasts, and they had their own form of currency. Like they were a they, they were, were very much developed. a developed society. They had been here for thousands of years, and we kind of the unfortunately a lot of certain things kind of played part in history leading up to the Europeans arriving that made it very easy for them to kind of push them out of their land. Um, There was some very bad uh, pandemics with a lot of awful diseases that caused a huge drop in their population and they were not able to kind of like regain that number in people in time to kind of have a good stronghold to fend themselves off against the the Europeans. Yeah. Um I also do want to say as we're going through all of this um kind of before I like really get deep into it um the Wampanoag were a very kind of like they weren't a very like like one size fits all kind of people as far as like religions and rituals go. It was kind of like a like a confederacy of townships of villages. So they all even had like different names. You had like the Patuxet village, which was the Patuxet tribe, the Poconoquet. Um, there's a couple other names that we have listed. Um, the Herring Pond, um, Chattaquiddick. Like there's dip. They had different different little villages had different names. They all had their own different dialects and slightly Some varying of these names are still villages or yeah. subtowns rather in yeah. in Plymouth and on the Cape. Chatham's another Manomet. one. Nosset, Manomet, um, Mohegan is another one. Mohegan yeah. Sun. They're all um, yeah, those are all run by so like this the indigenous tribes. These are all of these villages had very similar like gods and deities and languages, but the dialect was kind of different when you went from village to village. You know, the further you got away, the further the dialect and stories would kind of differ so not all of these rituals may have specifically been the Patuxet tribe themselves but they were the Wampanoag as a whole so like but if I get something like a little off you know don't come at me I don't Um, think any I don't think anyone would historian is gonna listen to our podcast but also just kind of take everything with a grain of salt and just know that each village kind of kind of had their own way of doing things and also it was all very similar weren't and that's the other thing they were not documented very well unfortunately a lot of 
the Wampanoag's own history was very much erased. Even like they didn't really keep a lot of written records and a lot of elders and like tribe, like high, high end and like prominent members of tribes were either sold into slavery or just kind of mass ex- executed. And everyone else was kind of forced into like conform to Christianity or, you know, we're going to sell your land from under your feet and just kill you essentially. So they had to, you know, they had to get rid of their names and take Christian names like George and John and Benjamin and fucking, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And they weren't allowed to. King Philip. Yeah, they weren't. Exactly. Which who we will call Metacomet for our because that was his name. Yeah. Or Metacom, as you'll see in some other ones. But Metacomet was like the most common. So but King Philip was his English name because they, they couldn't be bothered to learn the language beautiful language that the Wampanoag had um which is just shows you know that's just the I I could go into a whole fucking three-hour podcast about imperialism and genocide and how the Christians had a horrible this way is of why history the with Amanda but needs to be its own <laughs> podcast uh, there's so many history podcasts um I know but there's so many true crime podcasts too we're true. just another true crime podcast but yeah so like I said, you know, just don't come at me and know that, like, you know, each tribe and each village kind of had things kind of were a little bit different for everyone. Um, but essentially, we're going to go into a brief background of who the Wampanoag were and their culture and how the European explorers impacted their lives. And in our second episode, we will get into King Philip's War and that whole episode will just be King Philip's War and kind of what happened after that. because. I feel like, especially in this area, everyone kind of seems to think that, you know, the thanks, you know, the pilgrims came, Thanksgiving happened. We got this land from them in some vague kind of way. And then, you know, they just kind of disappeared. But they're okay, so very much around to this day. I'm looking at the little map that you kind of sent me of um, southeastern Massachusetts. Yes. Um, on Martha's Vineyard, Chappaquiddick. Yes. Cha- they, that's still... Uh, Chappaquiddick, yeah. It's still called that. Yeah. They call it Chappie. Because um, I hung out with a local one time. She drove me around mm. the island. Yeah, the, so that the, um, that the Wampanoag who live on Martha's Vineyard are known as the, the Gayhead tribe. And they actually live over on Gayhead, which is a, yep. an area of the the beach. Um, They actually will talk a lot about their tribe when we talk about the great giant Moshup, who really helped the Wampanoag. Um, and he actually created Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket. So we'll get into that when we talk about okay. their folklore a little bit. He's a he's a cool character. Um, but yeah, so like I said, you know, everyone kind of has that vague, not quite sure understanding of where, like what the first Thanksgiving is. You know, all we know is that some Puritans or pilgrims arrived on this little thing called the Mayflower and met the natives. And... And they landed yeah, on Plymouth and they, Rock. Yeah, and they forget. helped up. Oh, they landed on Plymouth Rock, which isn't true, guys. Plymouth we're going to talk about that. Um, and, you know, they said that the natives were very kind to them and helped them survive the harsh New England winter. And the following autumn, they had a wonderful, bountiful harvest and everything was great. Um, you know, maybe you'll get a brief mention of the French and Indian War before you get into the revolution. But that's it. But, you know. The Wampanoag were here, like I said, for thousands of years. They actually had arrived in this area in about 12,000. I'm sorry, it wasn't CE, it was BCE. 
Um, they had been following large game that they hunted into the area and ended up kind of settling. They were originally a nomadic tribe that ended up kind of developing a semi-nomadic seasonal lifestyle. So um, they would, you know, kind of live in their like summer villages closer, especially the coastal ones, closer to the water and the ocean during like spring and summer. And then after their great harvest in autumn, they would move inland and stay in the forest for the long winters because they had a little more protection from the from the elements when you're surrounded by trees. Now, um, today, the Wampanoag people encompasses five different tribes, some feder- federally recognized and others are just recognized by the state of Massachusetts. And I just wanted to list those off. Those are the Mashpee Wampanoag and the Wampanoag of tribe of Gayhead, Massachusetts, um, which are the indigenous people of Martha's Vineyard. Both are recognized at a federal and state level. And then we have the Chappaquiddick Band of Wampanoags, the Herring Pond Band of Wampanoags, the Pacasset Wampanoags, which are also known as the Poconoquet, which I believe I've talked about them before. Briefly. Um, That's familiar. It's a name I've definitely mentioned before. Um, and all of those are recognized by the state of Massachusetts as indigenous Wampanoag tribes. Like I said before, those are just different, different tribes who are different villages in this area. I'll post that map that I sent to Jen on Instagram. You can actually see their names on there and where they lived. Herring Pond actually lived right in kind of in the, like the Plymouth South Shore Cape Cod well, area. Well, there's Great Herring Pond exactly. in Plymouth. Um, so the Wampanoag have also been known as, Ma- as the Massasoit, which is uh, the name of their most famous sachem, which is what they call their chief which was, we all know, Sachem Massasoit or Chief Massasoit mm-hmm. is what you hear. I'm going to refer to them as Sachem because I'd like to try and be as respectful as possible. Yeah. Try to use their terms. Um, I know the Middleborough mascot yeah. is the Sachem. Yes. And then there's the Massasoit Community College. So a lot of these tribes' names are still being still used, used to which this day. is awesome that they didn't rename everything, Yeah, you know, and they're still kind of, and just it also likes respect, to anyone kind who of. lives in this area, you know, next time you see those, just kind of think of that, you know. A lot of these names are either of famous sachems or um or uh I believe it is Samoset is the name for Samoset Street in Plymouth. Um, see, everything's named after everything. Yeah. That's why I can't There's... pronounce anything when I go down to the Cape. <laughs> it's, if you know, you know. It's a it's a lot of hard names. Um, but Wampanoag translates to people of the first light or also Eastern people or my personal favorite people of the dawn. Uh, and essentially it was, you know, they, they considered themselves the first to see the sunrise. They lived closest to the East. Oh, I so love that. yeah, the people of the first light. Um, it also like very kind of loosely translates to just like Easterners. Yeah. Which, which makes sense. They were from the East. So, um, tribes have lived in this region. Uh, Like we said, we have archaeological evidence from about 12,000 BCE. Um, Sometimes that number does vary. Others, it will say about 9,000 BCE. But anytime you're like carbon dating sometimes like that, it doesn't give you an exact date. It gives you like a a fucking like 100-year range kind of where it's like from this to this. Yeah, okay. So so you can never, you're never like 100% exact. Um, but around 7,000 BCE was when they kind of had permanent settlements. And like I said, that's when they kind of started having that sub-nomadic life. Uh, and then um, around 1,000 um, BCE, 
is when maize or corn actually is thought to arrived in the region from the south because I don't know if you knew this, corn is originally a tropical plant. Really? Yeah. Um, so it took, corn farms it took all over the place. It took thousands of years, but it started to. It's a very adaptable crop, so it started I don't look to at adapt corn as being tropical. To, I know, right? I think, of but corn, it makes sense because like they're, they're those reeds. So think of like sugarcane and stuff like that. They're those thick reeds that would grow in like a nice kind of marshy area. So it makes sense. Um, but after thousands and thousands of years of mutating and evolution, it had developed to grow in the northeast. And um, this is actually when uh, archaeologists, scientists, historians noticed a significant difference in the Wampanoag's way of life, as well as their burial practices. So we're going to get into that. It's actually really interesting. So before the Wampanoag would bury individuals in their own plots, and then later actually... uh, dig up these bodies and move them to a mass burial site that was that they had for the entire village. Uh, so historians believe it was some sort of like communal, like you would go with your where your ancestors are kind of kind of vibes. But with the in- introduction of corn um, around that same time, the bodies were now starting to be buried in the fetal position facing west. And the bodies were covered in red ochre paint and adorned with offerings such as like corn, squash, and different vegetables. It's basically another supplies like a knife, clothing, uh, any kind of supplies that they thought they might need in the afterlife. So it seemed like instead of kind of having a like communal burial, the soul kind of went on this like westward journey. That's, which is I love that. Very cool. Um, and we'll get into like their, their and deities can, and stuff. Can I just like, my just thought process. Yeah. So, and this is all in this area where we grew up. Yes. There's definitely still, they're definitely still unmarked buried. Oh, everywhere. Absolutely. All over. Absolutely. Um, so, it was just weird to think about. I just had that thought pop up. There are some like burial, burial grounds that we found. There's actually one in Lakeville that I think I might try and go and drive by um, tomorrow. I got to go to my sister's in Middleborough uh, that is the Royal Wampanoag Cemetery. And it was, uh, they like developers found all of these remains and realized that it was an ancient burial ground. So it's been, you know, sectioned off and has a plaque and everything. I and love that. Like is, you know, respected as it should be. Mm-hmm. So it there very well could be, but there also could very well be spots where they're just not, not marked at all. Um, if you weren't a good person in life, you didn't often get like a great burial because uh, it was believed that your soul wasn't going to get to go on a journey westward anyway. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about their spirits and stuff. But uh, basically around the same time that corn came around uh, was also the development of a very important tool, the bow and arrow, which made hunting significantly easier. And with that and agricultural advances, um, they kind of got into that more permanent settlement of just farming instead of a nomadic hunting and gathering life. Um, this is when there is the introduction of, I don't know if you remember this from elementary school, these so-called three sisters, nope. which are- The Sanderson three, sisters? No, they're three very in- important crops, corn, 
beans and squash, which were just basically we probably, these staples. We probably learned. I don't remember. It's definitely in like children's Anything books and stuff. From but yeah, the the three sisters. Uh, it's a very common terminology in a lot of indigenous tribes. Was you know their staple of their agricultural life and their diets as well because it was what grew the best up here in the Northeast. Um. So like I said, uh, the they kind of had like small confederations where there was a head sachem or chief and this could be a man or a woman and the sachem would preside over a number of other sachems or sagamores which was a subordinate chief kind of like the assistant chief um in like that was kind of like for like larger villages they would have multiple heads of political power so the power. sachem is a head chief yes and, and a sagamore, sagamore would be like the the, the okay. under guy see i'm like sagamore yeah, that's a town. Yeah, and the Sagamore Bridge. And it's cool to learn that this is like levels of yeah hierarchy, I guess. Yeah, it was. It was kind of like their their monarchy, if you will. Uh, so each community had authority over a well-defined territory. And these are actually usually passed down matrilineally. Matrilineally. I believe I said that right. Which is through mothers and grandmothers. I was going to say, is that through like so, the mother lineage? Yeah, so essentially... Uh, Men were in charge of kind of like hunting, gathering, and th- like hunting, like big game and stuff like that, uh, whaling, fishing. Women were in charge of farming and kind of more of like the communal things, collecting shellfish, berries, nuts from the forest, and stuff like that. So, because women were in charge of the farming lands, they were also in charge of the harvest, which was the biggest time of year. Um, so Certain, you know, families, certain women who had farmed certain areas for years and years and really cultivated that land, that that's where their territories were marked off for their villages. So that's kind of how it was passed down from grandmother to mother to daughter, which I think is so cool. Very cool. Um, I think um, I'm just thinking I'm like, I just want that simple life going to collect nuts in the forest and yeah. berries from the trees and yeah, until the pale face man comes and gives you a small pox blanket and sells you into slavery and ships off to the caribbean amanda why do you have to fucking ruin everything because unfortunately <laughs> that's what happened we uh, as americans we get fed history through very much a rose colored filter oh fuck yeah um especially as white females as we both are so especially when we we're try to you know from the area yeah we try to try to break that break that nostalgia uh no you just, as, she's as like no jen i'm not gonna hold your fucking hand today as beautiful as it sounds you know living back then that's also it was the 1600s so you know you would have been sold off to the first crotchety old sea merchant who knocked on the door with 10 shillings and a chicken i love how you just like pull this out of your fucking <laughs> brain like these scenarios and these i'm just like <laughs> yeah Thanks, you know, I'm sitting here in my mind. I was an imaginative child. And I'm literally just like closing my eyes and I'm just like picking berries in the forest in my head and yeah, tending to a little fire. And Amanda's like, yeah, nope, wake the fuck up. (laughs) Your dream's over. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Okay. So um, nothing about this is funny. No, nothing about this is funny. Uh, Prior to the European settlers arriving in present day Massachusetts, the Wampanoag had a population, and this number does kind of vary, but I'm just going to give a ballpark. It was anywhere between 50,000 to 100,000 people spread over about 67 villages. Uh, there was 3,000 alone living on Martha's Vineyard. So Decent number. Just to give you an idea. 
Um, if you look at the Plymouth Patuxent Museum website today, though, I believe it says something like the Wampanoag tribe was 250 or 2,500 people strong and had only settled in Plymouth 400 years prior to the Puritans' arrival. That's a lie. Which is not accurate at all. And we literally have evidence from the earth, like archaeological evidence that proves that that is not accurate. We have bones and evidence of pottery and like villages. Like that's, it's here. I know that when you hear like of an archaeological dig, you think of like somewhere in the desert looking for like a, like a mummified tomb but they're they're here and, too and it's very small minded to to know that humans have been around for x amount of time and you think the whole fucking area that is north america it's had nobody living yeah, there it, like it's nobody very, it's a very eurocentric yeah. kind of way of thinking like it's like europe it's, has been not eurocentric, like imperialistic is a yeah. better term for it a very imperialistic way of thinking so it's like clearly there have been people settled here for a long time. Just, yeah. Just like back at home where you came from. Yeah, they were well established. You know, they had villages who had, like I said, you know, they had their own form of currency, which was called wampum. I just these... think that the they came and they thought they were so much more developed than these um, indigenous tribes. They did. That's and essentially like, what it was. We have power over you. We have more developed than you you guys are still living this way so it kind of comes from and i could i could really get like and i could really go into like some fucking theocracy about this but it really kind of stems back to like the book of genesis which is you know adam and eve were put on this earth by god and then god presented them with everything else on earth so the christian way of thinking was very much a we were placed here by god everything else is beneath us and because god we are one step below god since he made us in his image we can do whatever we want yeah and that's that's kind of in a very very broad stroke way of explaining the imperialistic way of thinking no that was great because that's literally you just kind of said yeah. it and dropped the mic like you can you can they just really they, go into it they, if you want they to, were entitled but... because of religion yeah that's, that's that's essentially what it was and you know what times really haven't changed yeah no it really hasn't and what's really sad is the puritans in particular came here you know they came to the the new world trying to get religious freedom and then in turn completely decimated an entire culture's religion lifestyle and just way of life which is just sad but yeah, so I mean, obviously they were well established. They had um, you know, they were they had villages, they were, you know, there was not really a large amount of violence between the villages too, which I think is something that always kind of gets thrown around. Like I feel like especially in like movies, like the old western movies and even like kind of more current movies today, you see like a lot of scalping and like you know, pillaging and attacking and stuff like that. The Wampanoag were not a very violent people. Even if there were arguments between tribes, they were very much into more of like the guerrilla warfare kind of ambushing kind of style. And it was very like light guerrilla warfare. Like they would like sneak into a village at night, steal some goods, maybe kidnap like a couple people and just hold them for ransom for a few days and then bring them back. And like the sachems would, you know, have like a talk and kind of come to an agreement and then everything would be fine. But 
they weren't like a they weren't the savages that like the early settlers kind of wrote them out to be. be. Some yeah, some tribes maybe. Some tribes were, but not could, could be fairly tribe, violent. No. But the Wampanoags did not really have necessarily a violent history, especially like an intertribal violence. Like obviously people would get into arguments and there would be like little disputes and stuff. But there wasn't like war between tribes. There, yeah. There, there, they could come to common They weren't ground. like a constantly warring, like, you know, obviously like some did not get along, but they could always kind of come to some kind of like civilized agreement, like, you know, or like an agree to disagree. Like it wasn't, it wasn't very violent. You know, it wasn't like they were constantly warring. That's basically what I'm trying to get at. Um, but essentially, like, you know, they, they had a really wonderful way of life. Um, the women, like I said, were responsible for pretty much everything. Uh, and I kind of wanted to talk about that a l- for a little bit, um, or at least everything within the village and the home, because I thought it was really awesome that they have a super strong, like, female role. Um, they were responsible for all of the farming, all of the cooking, making clothes, uh, handling all of the livestock, and taking care of the children. Um, they also like weaved blankets, baskets would help make the homes. And they were also in charge of the great harvest, which was the biggest part of autumn, uh, which we're going to get into like each season and how it played an important role in their life because the seasons were super fucking important. Um, but essentially the autumn harvest was like the biggest time because that's what was going to get them through the winter. And women were completely in charge of that. And they got to pick which men they needed to kind of like recruit from hunting to like help with the harvest and everything. Um, And since they primarily relied on all of the goods for women, they basically had a very much like more appreciated role, greater economic power and a large spiritual role in the community as a whole. Um, Another cool thing that they had, which uh, young girls, when they hit their first menstrual cycle, was actually a celebrated time like a coming of age cleansing moment and they got to go to segregated huts some of these were called moon huts which i thought was pretty fucking cool and it was like a time where all of the women in the tribe who were like having their time of the month could go and hang out and like just like like kind of like a self-care like cleansing ritual how come we don't have which Those is right now because they would be red centers like on hands made handmaid's tale. They'd be like, oh, all the fertile women in one place. Great. Round them up. That's that's exactly how it you're not now. fertile when you're on your period. No, you're opposite. But from if you're if you have your period, you're ovulating, which men would just think not fertile. always. I know, but men are stupid. And they don't understand women's bodies, so they think period she can make babies. Well, I'd like to go to a place called the Moon Center. <laughs> I would also Center like to go to the Moon Center and hang out a with little, all my girls. Lay on a little heated bed with a little blankie. But I'm just too afraid that now it wouldn't have the great, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as nice as it, it sounded back then. Um, boys had a little bit different kind of coming of age ceremonies. We'll talk about that when we get to um, what their life was like in winter. Um, women were also allowed to choose their husbands if they wanted to. Um, or they could decline a marriage proposal if they wanted. Um, the marriage. So they weren't forced into it. No, like, they weren't. There were some a arranged lot of cultures make you do. Yeah, there were some like arranged marriages, but it was usually like the parents of like the parents of each person, kind of arranging it from like a long-standing like family friendship. Yeah. So it wasn't always, and like even then, they could still the the people still you know the bride and groom still had a say. They could be like, I don't want to do this. Yeah, it's like. 
hey, you got a kid. We got a kid. They're the same age. Let's have a meet. If they hit it off, great. Exactly. So that's kind of what it was. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like most of the times, you know, it was people within your village. So it was someone that you were very close with already. Um, So, you know, it always kind of worked out very well. But both parents and both like both parties all had to like consent and be like, yes, I want to do this. I'm agreeing to this. And if they didn't, then the sachem wouldn't approve the marriage. So there's no child bride cousin wife. No child bride cousin wife. Yay! I mean, until they get kidnapped by the Europeans. No! Stop crushing my dreams. Sorry. Sorry. I know, this is the wrong episode to have hopes and dreams. I'm just glad that I can trace my lineage not back to the Puritans and back to my grandmother who arrived here in 1913 from Sweden. So I feel, you know, the people who are like, my family were pilgrims. I'm like, oh, God, I'm so sorry You're for proud. you. It's like um, <laughs> when you, was it Wednesday? And they have that um, Puritan yep. place. And they're like, my dad is the yep. leader of this, whatever. Yeah, whatever I'm, they say. I'm the great, 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 great grandson of William Bradford. And I'm like, that's not that's something you should announce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh god, my Sicilian ancestors came over here in like 1908 or something. My dad can confirm that if you if you want to know, Amanda. <laughs> so good. hopefully, but, but I don't know about my mom's side. Good god. Anyway, back to the Wampanoag women. Um, the Europeans also first um, who first kind of came to the area wrote about the Wampanoag women and their culture that the mothers were, uh, and I quote, overindulgent when it came to their children. <laughs> overindulgent um, and that they doted on them for far too long especially the infants so basically they were you know good mothers because uh, the European way of, of mothering back then was pretty much like pop them out hand them to the nursemaid and you know give them a firm handshake when they come home from boarding school Like there was very little interaction okay. a lot of lack of you know nurturing there Got it. So they believed that the Wampanoag women were too doting and nurturing to their children. Essentially, from everything I read, it sounded like they were awesome mothers who very much cared for Just their children took care and of their kids, taught them how to be, you know, good, withstanding members of the village, and raised them up into their teenage years, and then, you know, helped them find a nice husband or wife. I feel like that's the normal. So yeah, sounds like a normal, healthy parent. But you know, those Europeans, they know all. They do. Uh-huh. They you didn't know that? Yeah. Amanda, I guess they she do. She wants to fucking punch me. <laughs> <laughs> she hates my sarcasm. I love your sarcasm. Um, but like I said before, the men were in charge of like hunting large game, fishing, whaling, which these motherfuckers would go out on canoes that they dug out of trees, basically, and, and go whaling. Oh my god. Fucking whaling. Out on the harbor. Wild. That's insane. Absolutely wild. Um, The men would also handle most political matters between neighboring tribes, even though, like I said, women could be sachem, so they could also be involved in these matters, too. They also handled any types of, like, war or any kind of battles that they had. But like I said, they were never really a violent group. So it was more like, you know, they handled ambushing the tribe over and stealing their corn because they got in a disagreement. Like, that's, that's really what would happen. So they were not really as savage as the Puritans said they were. Um, so let's get into like each season and how that helped the Wampanoag tribe. And then we're going to get into their uh, 
their spirits and their uh their religion so autumn was a very important time for the village like i said you know they had the great harvest uh anyone in the northeast will tell you that we have a wicked short grow season up here so you really need to work around that and the wampanoags took this very seriously so summer and fall were their time to really just get to it um like i said before you know they had the three sisters corn beans and squash those were the staple of their diets and overall farmers farming and harvesting in general um in autumn they would kind of harvest everything and then store them in small underground almost like root cellars to keep everything fresh throughout the winter so they would just dig deep enough that it was you know nice and cold and use that kind of thermal cooling to keep everything fresh throughout the winter uh another important harvest that came in september was cranberries and they actually have a whole holiday surrounding the cranberry harvest it's still celebrated to this day where what is it it's called cranberry day uh it's usually harvested uh on martha's vineyard uh with the gay head tribe and it is one of the wampanoag's uh most important tribal holidays so long ago cranberry day included uh many days of harvesting and feasting on the cranberries and they just had this big like week-long celebration now in autumn today um there is a harvest with the coastal wampanoag tribes where they will um bring children out and just the whole families will go out and they will harvest wild cranberries and then make big feasts with them which is just so freaking sweet um it's so funny because like when you have friends that like uh, like when i was in college i'd have like some college friends like come to my hometown or whatever drive by a cranberry bog and they'd be like what is that yeah they have no idea what it is yeah ocean spray you guys know ocean spray oh god ocean all spray that shit is made everything. out here everything yeah their yep. headquarters is in lakeville i think yeah i used to drive by it all the time awesome Fun they fact. own like all the cranberry bogs and carver most and of them Plimpton and middleborough a lot of them are privately owned yeah um but, but then those people sell to ocean spray <laughs> yeah to make money or they just you know get old and they don't want to yeah. do it anymore but um but yeah just growing up in where we lived it was just like cranberries everywhere we, we used to go ice skating on the cranberry bogs yep. ice skating on the bogs or we would just walk yeah, the trails just walk. yeah that was our childhood you know what we need a good bog walk oh i would love a good when bog we have walk. our plymouth day whenever we do that we're gonna go to a cranberry bog just walk around that'd be so nice just walk around oh that'd be great but yeah so uh cranberry day is still a celebrated holiday with the Wampanoag tribe, especially on Gayhead and Martha's Vineyard, which I think is just so sweet. Um, so in our autumn, after the harvest, the coastal Wampanoag tribes would move inland from their summer villages on the beach, their homes that were kind of deeper in the forest. Their homes were called wigwams or wet woos, which I sent you a couple pictures of. Obviously, if you've been to the Plymouth Patuxent Museum, you have seen them. Um, they're kind of saplings bent into a dome shape covered with bark, moss, and animal hides. Um, sometimes they're just one small dome or they would have uh, long houses, which is, you know, just a little bit of a bigger kind of a bigger dome. Um, these were built to be easily dismantled uh, for their semi nomadic lifestyle, which I thought was very cool. They're also just very, very nice way to kind of use what's around you. Because we do have a lot of saplings around here. I don't know if you've ever tried to like make a fort in the woods. I used to all the time as a kid. That's exactly what I would do is I would take all the saplings. You would. And like bend them and take my dad's bungee cords out of the garage and like 
fucking tie shit together. I love it. Yep. Sorry, Dad. Uh, <laughs> he just said, "Don't say anything on the podcast that he doesn't." That wasn't bad hear. though. That wasn't TMI. He's probably like, "I was wondering where those bungee cords went." Yeah, that's why they all fucking broke. Never got I'm sorry. them back. <laughs> all stretched out and ruined. Oh God, we did terrible things. But anyway, uh, so winter was uh, a very kind of dark time. It was the time of, you know, death of Mother Earth. Everything was slumbering and asleep. So Wampanoag did their best to survive in the harsh New England weather conditions. Uh, they spent most of the, you know, their winter days and nights snuggled up in their wigwams with a nice bearskin blanket next to a warm fire, which sounds fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, during times of hardship, they would grind up acorns and eat those for a high source of calorie. Oh, really? So if you're ever, you know, stuck in the woods. You can eat acorns. There you go. Eat acorns. It's not going to taste great, but you know, so it, it is. It's a high source of calories. What so fucking it's going to be something. actually taste great. I'd like one person to fucking tell me they enjoy actually eating like a nut in the texture and the I dryness. Like walnuts. Yeah, but you need a little salt and like a chaser. I, mean, I could... guess, but I could, I could eat like a walnut. Oh my God. If someone. Oh yeah, me too. If someone's like, oh, you want a handful of almonds? I need to have a fucking beverage. Like, I can't. <laughs> very dry. I can't fucking sit there and fucking eat a dry ass nut. Um, so there are some stories from different historians that there, um, certain Wampanoag tribes had a certain coming of age ritual for young boys during the winter where they would actually spend their winters alone in the wilderness and would have to just survive by themselves. Uh, and during this time, the boys would purposely ingest poisonous berries and plants to see how their bodies would react, uh, causing them to go through some sort of spiritual awakening where they would become men at the end of that journey. Which, I mean, we, we love a good Sounds like a mushroom winter trip. wilderness acid trip. Yeah, that's literally what I have in I my say, notes next. It's like, I forget the name of the, um, I think it's a mushroom. <laughs> um, people go on these spiritual ass journeys and they take these. It's peyote. It's not a mushroom, but it's a it's a plant. Yeah, it's a plant, and they go on this fucking trip, and they need to yeah. be like supervised. But it's a a whole spiritual awakening yeah. process, which is I think any any psychedelic trip is is can it's do good for a, your spirituality. Oh, if absolutely. You're, if you're looking for that type of clarity, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it is very interesting. There is also um, we'll get into it when we do a Salem witch trial episode but there is a a uh, a psychedelic fungi that grows in this area of the northeast and it would specifically grow on like wheat rye and corn um they believe that that's one of the things that may have caused the hysteria in the salem witch trials because if you think about it you know if your whole life is being a fucking fire and brimstone puritan and then you all of a sudden eat some bread and have a psychedelic trip what are you gonna see fucking demons or so. <laughs> you just let loose a little bit and people think you're possessed Puritans or didn't know how to let loose. Those people fucking banned colorful clothing. We're going to get into it at the end of this episode. I know, but they if were you accidentally, miserable. I mean, I don't want to. Um, <laughs> I think Amanda is just reading my mind. Are you reading my mind sometimes? Jen, Jen going, I don't want to talk from personal experience, but. But not saying that at all. <laughs> um, anyway. Sorry, Dad. But sometimes you just, you can't fucking control your reactions. Yeah. 
it happens. You get and overly if, emotional. And if some, if some, you know, Puritan who is, you know, very rigid with the rules and yeah. accidentally And every ingested. Sunday they're sitting there listening about how fire and hell and demons and Satan are going to come get them because they're, you know, mm-hmm. just a sin because they were born. Like, yeah. And if this guy is on, You're gonna on see mushrooms some weird shit. and he's acting a fool, people are going to be like, some he's possessed or he's seen some shit yeah. or whatever. Or if just a bunch of girls eat a bunch of bread and then start seeing demons, you know, they're possessed. Witches. Don't eat the bread. Somebody's cursed them. Don't eat the corn. Well, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't that type of thinking. But that's something we'll get into in another day. But yeah, so that was a coming of age ritual for the some, and I say some, very specifically some because it wasn't I didn't find it for all tribes it was just one story that one historian wrote down from a an account from a European settler so like take it with a grain of salt mm-hmm. but I thought it was cool and kind of you know just a little interesting thing to add into it your little thing that you just wanted to add yeah made, made us go off on like a four minute tangent about mushrooms <laughs> sorry guys uh, don't be sorry but- <laughs> But after winter, you know, comes spring and spring was a time of rebirth in the Northeast. As we know, you know, the seasons up here are ever changing and fucking beautiful. Uh, So this is when like wildlife really return and hunting and fishing could become normal again. The women would prepare the fields for the new crops and they would also return to their summer villages along the coast. Summer was by far one of the more bountiful times, definitely like autumn. For the Wampanoag, um, this is a time when wildlife was abundant as well as the ocean, and it's the peak of any, it's the peak of the grow season in the Northeast. Um, so the Wampanoags are actually responsible for the first summer clam bakes in Massachusetts Yay, and beach parties. Uh, fun fact. And archaeologists are still finding evidence of these massive week long feasts. And by evidence, I mean literally piles of discarded clamshells and like pottery and stuff like left on beaches that they found like buried in the dunes that are clearly from like massive clam bakes so essentially multiple villages would get together for these and they would spend days on the beach it was done right on the beach because you got everything you need there they would just make a big pit with a pile of stones and then let a massive bonfire go until those rocks at the bottom got red hot and then they would actually throw the clams right onto the red hot rocks and then take um, the the rock weed, which is a type of seaweed around here. You see it everywhere. You know, the ones with the big bulbous balls on the end. Yeah. So those balls are actually just filled with salt water. Really? So it created the perfect amount of steam to steam the clams. Wow. So that, that was their. Doing. Yeah. So that, that was their clam bake and they would bring vegetables and. They would also make uh, like wines and meads out of like summer berries, like wild strawberries, blueberries, and of course, any cranberries that they had left over. So we're just on the beach having a bunch of clams and lobsters and shellfish and scallops, drinking some fucking berry sangria, basically. And uh, they would actually have like essentially football games with the neighboring villages on the beach as well. Um, they would make like a leather ball out of like animal hide essentially and they would have almost like a kind of like a cricket football kind of vibes game and each village would have its own sports team essentially I and love they would that. compete against each other wow they were during like, these clam bakes they have jerseys and numbers no but you scoreboard know, i'm sure they each wore like specific were colors they on possibly they would keep score in the sand but they were not on espn oh 
I don't, I don't think it, you know, I don't think it was around at that time. Are you sure? But yeah, these, that up. these clam bakes sound pretty freaking amazing. And it's, you know, the next time any of you guys are sitting on Cape Cod on the 4th of July, having some lobster on the beach at, you know, one of those million dollar beach homes, just think about how the Wampanoag were doing that thousands of years ago. And they were the first ones to do it. They were like the real Massachusetts people, you know? Mm-hmm. They Which set the just, traditions. They did. They they set a lot of the, even like cranberries, you know, they set a lot of traditions that we still really take for granted to this day. Um, So that's why I felt it was important to kind of add them in here so that now the next time, you know, you're sitting there and thinking about this or doing this shit, you can think about how we can thank the Wampanoags for all of these awesome traditions that they showed us. Um, so obviously keep in mind, all of this was kind of pre-contact. Like I said, this was before the European settlers arrived. Um, things would drastically change when they did arrive. But before we talk about them, we're going to get into some folklore, myths, and monsters. Ooh, Because ah. the Wampanoag were a very spiritual people. They actually believed that one person had two souls inside their body. Uh, and the first soul was, you know, the one that was just with you for your everyday awake life, just going around and existing. And your other soul went came out actually when you were asleep and would interact with the spirit world. And your dreams would be a representation of whatever the second soul was doing in the spirit world. That's probably, they probably were having dreams at night and they were yeah. like, why am I having these visions it's when less, I sleep? Yeah. And that's, if you really, like, want to get down into, like, the, the deep history of anything, a lot of, a lot of spirituality and religion comes from cultures just trying to answer those questions. Why do we dream? Why do we feel pain? Why do we die? Like, things like that. That's kind of where all of the folklore starts to stem from. But dreams were very important to the Wampanoag. And if you were having, like, recurring dreams or if your dream was very vivid, you'd actually go to the village Pawa which was a wise woman or man of the village, and they would interpret your dreams for you. That is awesome. And if they, for some reason, felt that they could not interpret your dream, they would actually have to themselves go on a spiritually guided journey to then find the answer for your dream. So they would go and ask the spirits for guidance. Sometimes they would go into the swamp, and we're going to explain in a little bit why they would go into the swamp, because that was a hot spot. For spirits. Um, so the Native American tribes believed that Earth was a gift, a loan, something that they did not own, which, like I said, you know, we already kind of talked about what the Europeans believed. Or the, this the is mine. So, I'm here. Yeah. It's mine. Uh, a God put me here and gave this all to me. If it's under my feet, exactly. it to me. Um, but the, the Natives had a very different way of life. They believed that the Earth was a gift. Um, and that the resources of nature, which allowed people to live, had uh, not been earned by any human action, but had been freely given to them by their creator deity, who is known as, I'm going to refer to him as Kiatun. There was like several different variations of his name, um, also known as the Great Spirit or the Great Sun. Uh, so either one of those, whichever you will. And Keaton had no form, was neither male or female, not an animal, just a kind of like amorphous. Like the wind. Being, exactly. Um, he was also called like the sun, essentially. You know, people would look at the sun and they would say that, that was the great, the, the great spirit. You know um, what? 
I'm loving like their whole lifestyle, yeah. and their belief system, and I very it's beautiful, well, resonate isn't with it? it? Yeah, it's, it's, and that's why like I feel like we should people should know more about it. I feel like when you talk about the first Thanksgiving, all you hear is oh the Wampanoags helped the Pilgrims, but like I want to know more about the Wampanoags. They had a fucking awesome way of life. Mm-hmm. It just seems simple and just like beautiful and just authentic. Very much, yes, and they, just like without ill intention. Exactly, just, like, we're all here. We're all existing. We're all existing. Let's just do it together. And let's have fun. And let's, you know. That's really, in simple terms, that's really what it was. And I love the whole spiritual side of it because I'm very um, much, like, into stuff like that. I'm very much into spirituality. Um, The elements, the chakras, like, all that type of thing. And, like, each season had an importance to them. Yeah. And, like, I, I just, I don't know. The whole dreams. Yeah. Like, they're very in touch with that things. And they... Um, felt the need to interpret their dreams exactly which I like which don't think about our mental like our dreams or anything like that we're just like ah whatever our brains weird but like no well it's crazy because I had a dream a very very vivid dream and I I worked at um, elements massage for four years um, and it I loved working there Um, I had great managers I had great co-workers um, I had great clients and but, you know, you kind of get to a point when you're working somewhere or you get to a point in your career where um, you just, it just doesn't work for you anymore. Um, so I was feeling this way at Elements working there. And I just knew I wanted to do something different. Something right around the corner was coming for me. Um, and I knew it. And I had a dream that I was working at Elements. And I went into my normal room that I usually worked in. And there was a horse in there. And I was like, I don't know horse massage. <laughs> That's what I said out loud, like in the I don't dream. I've never seen you near a horse. I <laughs> I know horses are very like spiritual animals, but they I are, just like get nervous around big animals, beautiful like creatures. unpredictable. I don't want I don't want to be kicked. Um. So there was a horse in the room, and I and I told them I was like, I don't know horse massage, and they're like, you have to do it anyway. So I looked up the meaning of a horse the next day, and the meaning of a horse is freedom Ooh, in your dreams. Okay. So that was basically me being told that I'm going to be free from this job or yeah, career. That it's going to. Yeah. I so love I, th- that. I thought I'd like Ooh. to add that in a little bit. I love Because dream, dream interpretation is awesome. Yeah, I have very, very vivid dreams, and they're always in the same. I have, like, the same dream world that I constantly go to very weird and my sister has the same dream world as well like we've described like the same like buildings and rooms to each other it's probably some like alternate parallel universe that you guys like lived in another like upbringing maybe that's that's because i know i don't want to put your your arrow your stuff but like amanda you know didn't have like the best it was a a rocky childhood rocky childhood yeah so um, I feel like maybe in a parallel universe. Possibly. It was where... it's me and Emily and we have a very strong bond. It's my yeah. youngest my youngest sister. If, so. if you know, your mother didn't, you know, whatever, if she was around Just more. Dip. Um <laughs> I feel like maybe that's your alternate universe that you guys possibly lived I, in, in. I mean if... I hope we didn't live there because it's not always great. 
Oh, but <laughs> I was trying to make it rainbows and butterflies for you. So, sometimes it's not bad. Some sometimes. Well, it's you said right. dream world, so I was like, ooh, like a utopia. Because it, it is a dream. It's not always a utopia, though. Oh, okay. Sometimes so that, that was my interpretation. Um, sometimes we're like being chased by things. It's so scary. Yeah, it gets stressful. A little stressful. Well, but just um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Just ignore everything I said then. I have uh, I have some weird dreams, but that's that's another podcast for another day. Uh, let's get back to Keaton. Uh, Keaton. So, uh, like I said, he was responsible for the creation of everything and actually carved man and woman out of wood and put them on Earth with all plants and animals. And that was what the Wampanoags believed. Um, they also believed that when you died, if you were you know good in life and just kind of radiated like positivity and were just a good person and kind to others that you would take a journey to the west where the sun sets. You would spend eternity with your ancestors in Keaton's village. Um, however, if you were a shitty person in life, you would not be welcomed into these villages, and you would be doomed to walk the earth a lost spirit for eternity, or you would enter the underworld, which was ruled by a powerful spirit known as sometimes Cheapy, Oh, Sometimes scary. the horned god, but he also had another name that I specifically didn't add in there, and it was either Hobamok or Hawkamok. Dun dun dun! And anyone who is a Bridgewater Triangle fanatic is probably fucking jumping up and down in their seat right now because at the center of the Bridgewater Triangle is the Hawkamok Swamp, and I mentioned that swamps were kind of important. Now, cheapy translates roughly to ghost. Okay. Hockamock roughly translates to place where spirits dwell. Hobamock kind of roughly, it, it varies anywhere between evil spirit to just straight up devil. Because obviously when the Christians came and they were told, you know, these stories of Hobamock and Keaton, they immediately were like, that's God and the devil. And really just shoved that Christianity down their throat. Um, so Hobamok is what we'll refer to him. Um, lived, so are they interchangeably used? Hobamok and Hobamok and Hakamok. I saw were in, interchangeably used, but he was referred to as Hobamok the most. So is it the Hakamok swamp? It's the Hakamok swamp. But, but I feel like I've seen there's, Hobamok. Or, there's like I a think Hobamok there's marketplace and like Hobamok. I, I don't know. Can someone confirm for me if that's like? <laughs> Somewhere in Pembroke. It could be. I because I've seen the term Hobamok everywhere. Um, but Hawkamok is the name of the I'm swamp gonna look that's it in, up like Bridgewater It's, it's ringing bells for me. Um, I know there's a Hobamok marketplace that's like right in like Easton or Bridgewater, I think. Um but yeah, so Hobamok lived in the depths and darkness of the water. He was it is Hobamok Arena. Hobamok Arena, it's an oh, ice rink okay. in um, Pembroke. I just used to drive by it all the time. So. I remember that place. Okay. Go on. Sorry. But yeah. So he was the spirit of death and destruction. And it was said that he lurked within the water and in the nighttime shadows. Uh, this malevolent phantom was a source of pain, sickness, and emotional distress. He was a shapeshifter that frequently materialized as various grotesque apparitions, including. Uh, impersonations of dead departed loved ones and like a zombie like form that is um, terrifying or dead enemies like if if you had killed somebody in battle they would he would come back as that and torment you 
specifically at night uh, or in your dreams. Um, A great horned serpent, which I actually sent you a picture of. There's a lot of like artist renditions of that. Um, A large black panther or wolf. Um, So some villagers actually would not even go out at night in fear of an an encounter with Hopmok. They believe that when night fell, he was just out and about. Um, He is the subject of many like boogeyman-like stories for the Wampanoag as well that were kind of like to warn children from naughty behavior. Um, In other legends, um, Hopmok is a lot more kind of evil. He'll play really fucked up tricks on adults, such as stealing their eyelids so that they can never sleep again. That's not really a trick. Yeah. That's just some morbid Um, ass shit. Or twisting their feet to make them unable to walk. The eyelid thing is getting to me. Yeah, the eyelid thing. Really, When I saw it, steal your eyelids. I was like, Amanda, (gasps) I'm going to play a trick on you. I'm going to steal your eyelids. Yeah, that's just like playing a trick on you is like ringing your doorbell and running away. Yeah, though. Um, (laughs) So, like I said, uh, the Wampanoag, um, when they started uh, talking to the Europeans about this, they uh, really much began to start identifying Habamok with the devil. Um, It was believed that you could commune with Habamok in the swamps. Um, it was, you know, you would want to go there if you, if you felt that somebody in your family was like ill or like deathly dying and they had been cursed by him. You could go and ask for forgiveness or you could go there and ask to see a lost loved one. Um, swamps are areas where, um, you know, land and water really become one and where Habamok lived in water. They believed that uh, a swamp was an area where it was kind of like the veil was the thinnest between the two worlds, like the worlds of the spirits and the land of the living. And it was a place where you could go and actually commune with them. Um, They even believed that the trees in these swamps could be portals to the other side. And Pawas would go to the swamps to have like spiritual awakenings and to ask certain spirits for forgiveness or guidance. So they were very, very much a respected spiritual place for them. Um, Because Habamok lived in the water, um, this also created a big fear in the Wampanoags of death by drowning. Because they believed that if you died in the swamps or at sea, that you would forever be stuck in the underworld with Habamok. You would not be able to make it to the village in the west with Keaton, which just sounds fucking awful. Yeah. Um, It's just... Um, I know it's very like a spiritual thing, but it's also like this is like what a lot of religions think too. They're like, yeah. if you don't, you know, do this, you can't have this afterlife. And exactly. And I just, it was. I never want to be terrified of my afterlife. Yeah. I want to. I want to be. You yeah, know? they had a. It was a very much a fear, but they also they weren't like so f- afraid that like it was debilitating. They still very much traveled through the swamps. The swamps will play a huge role in how they lasted so long during King Philip's War. Um, and like I said, they would go there and commune with spirits, but they were they did have a fear of like death by drowning because they did not want to be stuck with with Hopamok. It was a uh, didn't sound like a fun time. No, it does not sound like a um, fun fucking time. And that the whole um belief of how the swamps were a, you know, a very spiritual place. It does play a role, uh, an important role, you know, for our later episodes with the Bridgewater Triangle. 
because a lot of the activity is centered around the Hockamock Swamp. Oh, yeah, that's going to be a big hot spot we'll and, talk about. And Hockamock, like I said, translates to place where spirits dwell. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a very important thing. And I mean, I also would like to point out that these are people who lived here for thousands of years before we did. So they believed that there was some weird shit happening in the swamps. I think we should probably listen to them. And the fact that it's named after their, uh, yeah, after their evil, like their darkest spirit, essentially. Did yeah. they name that or was that named after? The Hockamock Swamp was named it after that. But they did call that area like Hobamock, like that was where Hobamock lived. So they did not, you know, they didn't have villages there. They very much respected that swamp. And it was it. A, a place where Pa was, like I said, would go and try to commune with spirits but it was not a place to be fucked around with and not a place Have to go to there? at night i've been like through i mean the hockamock swamp is fucking massive but like i've driven through the area yeah okay have i yeah if you've driven through easton abington or bridgewater you've driven through parts of it it's all those wetlands out there okay so it's like not one centralized yeah it's spot. not really i'll actually i'll show you some pictures it's actually about three or four very large areas of the wetlands and then a couple smaller Got it. Okay. parts of it. And then there's communities kind of put between it. Um, the Europeans, we'll talk about this at the end of King Philip's War, um, they did try to drain the swamp, actually, because they wanted to develop the land. So another prominent figure in their folklore is the giant Mashup. And Mashup was a massive giant who could hunt whales and would basically just pick them up out of the ocean with his bare hands and trade them to villagers for tobacco. Um, he also supposedly helped keep the Wampanoag safe from a very large Thunderbird who lived on Martha's Vineyard. And Thunderbirds are uh, pretty common uh, cryptid in a lot of different native tribes just throughout the U.S., Essentially, this is a gigantic bird that had the ability to create thunder by flapping its wings and lightning would come from its eyes. And uh, it was said that this thunderbird would specifically keep Hobamok in the water by shooting lightning into the water. Uh, but sometimes he would get a little, little chaotic and would go after the villagers as well. So Mashup was said to have kind of helped keep this giant thunderbird in check. And in turn for that and many other reasons, the Wampanoag truly, truly just adored him. Um, he is the basis of a ton of stories of that, like just a ton of folklore of theirs where he's, you know, either getting into trouble or, you know, fixing something or, you know, going on some kind of adventure. And kind of much like the Aesop fables, they all kind of have some like lesson at the end of it. These are always I remember told. reading those in school. Yeah. Yeah. And they were always kind of told, you know, to the children of the tribes to kind of help them learn valuable life lessons. Um, now, Mashup was said to uh, live on Martha's Vineyard. Um, there's actually a stretch of beach on the vineyard that's named after him. And it was said that he actually also created Nantucket by dumping the ashes of his large tobacco pipe out into the sea. I thought was he had a, a tobacco pipe. He did have a tobacco pipe. Tobacco a was a very pipe? yeah, a tobacco pipe. Those a big, big part of the the Wampanoag. They love their tobacco. tobacco so and Nantucket wine. is just a pile of ash. Yep, just a pile of ash. He was just cleaning out his pipe. It's a big old bowl of resin. 
It's like, how many vill- villages do you think you've made? Yeah, I don't know. A Little lot. villages in other worlds. A, a lot. <laughs> if it was for, you know, that's, uh, that's too many villages. Get up. Overpopulation problem. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we said that uh, sometimes while living on the vineyard, Mashup would get homesick, and at one point he actually tried to make a bridge back to the mainland by scattering huge boulders into the water. Mashup never finished the bridge, but the large boulders remained uh, in the water, making up a large shoal just off the coast of Martha's Vineyard known as the Devil's Bridge. And this is an area, like a large area of rocks that kind of juts out into the bay. Kind of like a jetty, Um, almost. Almost like a jetty, but they're still very much under the water. But they're close enough to the surface that if a boat went up onto them, they'd be screwed. Got it. That's why it's called Devil's Bridge. you can't really see them. No, you can't really see them. Unless the tide's low. Yes, unless the tide's low. Um, So it was also said that the uh, smoke from his tobacco pipe was responsible for the fog around Nantucket Island and Martha's Vineyard. Which I thought was a, a cute little addition in there. Um, in some legends, Mashup is married to a wonderful woman named Squant or Squanet or Granny Squanet was another I like version. the granny one. Um, this was a, uh, at least in the coastal tribe, she was a powerful sea woman born from wind and waves, which Me just, too. I know, me right? Fucking too, I fucking bitch. love that. Um, the term sea woman just made me think of the grandma mare who is the beautiful sea goddess in Ponyo, which is a Studio Ghibli film. I don't know if anybody's seen it, but if they have, they know exactly what I'm Ponyo's talking about. I know Ponyo is one of your favorite. I don't um, think I've seen Ponyo, but oh, it's a beautiful I've seen Story. Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle, which I know is another one of your favorite, but they're all my favorites. Uh, but yeah, so I, just one little thing that I had to add. She made me think of the beautiful sea goddess from Ponyo. I'll show you some pictures. Also, if you hear me coughing, no, you didn't. It's okay. We all know Jen's a little sick, but it's fine. Um, depending on who you ask, Granny Squanet was either a goddess, a giantess, a mermaid, or queen of the Native American fairy folk, which we'll talk about in a minute. I like that, um, too. But either way, she was powerful and kind and beloved by all the Native people and had um, impressive powers. She could manifest storms and nor'easters and blizzards. Uh, when she and Mashup argued, which was pretty frequently, the weather would just get out of control. I think that's like a cute way that they explained the strange weather changes that happen in the areas of the Northeast. Cool. Um, so the Mohegans, which is a neighboring tribe over near more, more near Connecticut, um, believed that um, Squant was not a giant sea goddess, but instead was the queen of the fairy folk, which I'm going to fucking butcher this. Um Makai Wisug or the little people. I'm just going to refer to them as the little people um, because obviously every damn culture in the world has fairies because they are 100% real. I don't care what anyone says. Um, but these were helpful little spirits of the woods that were much, uh, much like any type of elves or fae folk in other cultures. You know, they would receive gifts from the tribes such as corn, berries, meat, and tobacco as gestures of respect. And in return, they would, you know, make sure that your crops were good and that you had good weather and that, you know, nothing bad would happen and they uh, they wouldn't play any nasty tricks on you. But, of course, these little people were not to be doubled cross. 
And like all other fae folk, they have their own rules of etiquette. So those who see them should not look directly at them because they do think that it's rude if you're staring directly at them. Um, if they kept, if you catch one of them in your house, it was said, if they showed up in your wigwam and um, you stared right at them or confronted them, they could actually point a finger at you and it would freeze you, rooting you to the ground where you were. And then they would take all of your belongings and just leave you with nothing. Okay. So like Which little is, Sour Patch Kids? Yeah. That's most fey folk, you know, they're little little tricksters. Yeah, they're little assholes. Yeah. Um, they were also, it was another rule that you do not speak to them when you see them in the summertime because that is when they are most active and most mischievous. So you can't look at them and you can't talk to them. At least in the summertime, you can't speak to them. You so, can, like, there were other stories of them showing up at their, like, people's houses and being very helpful. Um... Okay. There was a story of um, one tribal woman who was a like a healer, and a uh, a little person, a little one of the little people showed up at her house in the middle of the night and had her follow them into the woods, and it was to bring her to his ailing wife, and she healed this little person, and in return they adorned her with gifts and brought her back to her village safely. That's and the village was kind of like forever just like protected by the little people because of their kindness. I love that. So if some little person always... knocked at my door in the middle of the night and was like, come into the woods with me, I'd be like, bye, yeah, bitch. Fuck <laughs> I, got, I gotta go like do some laundry or exactly hide. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. Um, now, these are not to be confused with Pukwudgie. Puckwudgies. which are a well-known Bridgewater Triangle cryptid. Uh, Puckwudgies translates roughly to person of the wilderness. And they were small crane creatures ranging from about like knee height on us. So like they kind of like look a foot like a human and a porcupine had to be. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like, you know, if you've never heard of a Puckwudgie, think of like the size of a hobbit, but a like porcupine goblin. Like, that's the best vibes I could explain. Yeah, I think um, you hit that right on the head. Now, Pukwudgies had human-like features, but large pointy ears, nose, and long fingers. Um, they had smooth gray skin. Sometimes it was referred to as brown. Sometimes it said they were covered in fur. Um, it kind of varies. Uh, but it was always said that they kind of looked like little trolls or goblins. And these little dudes had a lot of tricks up their sleeves, and they loved to taunt and harm humans. And the Wampanoag tribe actually had a particularly detailed origin about Pukwudgies, like more detailed than a lot of their other like myths and monsters and folklore. Um, and it it's one of the few creatures that it really like held very strong throughout the years which i find very interesting and also makes me wonder if maybe there's some you know maybe there's some validity to it maybe they really are maybe the europeans also were seeing puck wedgies around fucking with their shit yeah and that's why the stories just stayed strong but essentially um the puck wedgies were uh the legend has it that they originally got along with the humans but the humans eventually got distracted by their relationship with the giant mashup who was very helpful to the villagers and this made the Pukwudgies jealous. 
They were offended that they weren't as well loved as Mashup and began to cause more mischief and tormenting activities, which in turn did not make Mashup happy. So, because the Pukwajis were fucking with the villagers and stealing things, you know, like stealing babies and stealing goods and fucking with their crops, Mashup collected as many as he could and shook them in his hands until they were confused and then tossed them around New England. Some of them died, Others landed, regained their consciousness, and came back to Massachusetts with fucking full vengeance, ready to just go. So if a human annoyed a Pukwudgie, they might become victim to some real unpleasant trickery. Um, They also might be, you know, pushed off a cliff, shot with fiery arrows, or like I said, have their children stolen, which sounds much like changelings. I know I've mentioned them before. Um... Pukwudgies could also create fire or orbs of light that would lure people deep into the woods and then, you know, to their doom. Sometimes they would just lure them straight off a cliff uh, or into a river or like a body of water. They love to try and lure people into the forest at night. That seems to be like their big thing in like most of the stories. Yep. Fuck that. (laughs) Um, So in European folklore, a ball of energy like this would have been known as the Will of the Wisps. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. That is a Scottish or Celtic folklore. Um, They are said to accompany many paranormal occurrences. In modern day paranormal research, you might call these orbs. We've all heard of orbs before. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. Uh, Which would often show up in pictures or sometimes you can actually see them materialize right in front of you. Yeah. Um, Pukwudgies also had the power of invisibility um, and could also sometimes transform into dangerous creatures like cougars or wolves or something like that. Um, perhaps the most frightening of all, um, one of the biggest rumors that the Wampanoags always spread around was that Pukwudgies had the power over spirits of people that they killed. So they controlled the spirits of anybody who they took. That is terrifying. Which is very terrifying. Um, but Pukwudgies would really be the last thing that the natives should truly fear because the real monster was arriving by boat on their beaches. And that was, as they referred to them as, the pale-faced man. I can just, like, I'm I'm putting myself, like, on the shore of Plymouth, just, like, and that's kind of what with I the wanted fog. to get that vibe. And that's and why like, I wanted just... the boat coming, yeah. and they're like, what... I wanted to start by explaining the Wampanoag culture because I feel like it is very underminded when anyone talks about the pilgrims or, you know, the start of America. Oh, absolutely. You don't, you're teaching me this stuff, Amanda. I know. School didn't teach me anything. This happened in my own hometown. Which is so sad because they had a beautiful way of life. Yeah, and they did. But you know what? This world is just so ass backwards that. Whenever something is right, it makes sense. People have to come in and fuck it up and and just make it not make sense because they want power. Yeah. That's all it fucking is. Pretty it's just, much. It's so fucking stupid. Like, just there's a lot of things about this world that just, you know, if they were done differently in a way that just made sense. But no, can't be that way. Yeah. There needs to be drama. Yep. Thanks, Great Britain. Thanks, just Great kidding. Britain. It's not all your fault. Me, an American, fucking saying that. I know. Like, this oh fucking my bitch. Oh, my God. <laughs> fucking anyone over in England, if they listen. I know we have listeners in in a handful of different countries. 
but um don't, don't judge us <laughs> no whenever i say the europeans please know that i'm talking about these early colonists european settlers not current day europeans it's kind of like um how people from different countries they look at us and they're like oh you're american like you must everybody sees us and looks at us like we look at florida yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I'm people are like, oh, this that. is your president. Okay, well, you're just like that. And it's just like, you know, we're a very divided country ourselves. And not everybody thinks the same. And not all of our states get along, like Amanda just said. Like Florida. Like, if, like people yeah, that are like, I want to move to Florida. Sorry, I'm Florida. like, ew, why would you want to move to Florida? It's also just fucking Satan's ball sack it, down It's also there. just it's like so a hot. cesspool. It's just like. I just feel like it's just so over fucking crowded. Like God's waiting my, room. My mom's friend lives in Florida, and we're all from fucking Plymouth, right? And she fucking moved down there, and she lives like a mile away from the Walmart. She's like, it takes me like twenty five minutes to get to Walmart because there's so much fucking traffic because there's so many fucking people. Yeah, like, everyone's moving. To fucking it's also because you don't need to inspect a vehicle. You can slap like fucking duct tape together any fucking thing with a motor and call it a car in florida and register it and put a plate on it but amanda's rhode island license is not valid in it, this. it's not valid in florida nope if amanda i guess if amanda tried to drive her car down in florida her license would be invalid yeah is that crazy it is like what if you wanted to go on a family trip to disney and you wanted to drive i would have to no i think uh sean's connecticut license wouldn't be allowed either Florida's a fucked up state. It's okay. Good thing sorry I don't want to go to Disney. If you there. I'm not sorry <laughs> for saying this because Florida fucking sucked ass. But, uh, except Disney World. Enough about Florida. Let's get back to 1614. Are you Do ready? I, I don't really want to go back there. <laughs> okay, go. Good because it's not fun. Um, so it's obviously this is 1614. This is a little bit before the pilgrims arrive. But um, it was the pilgrims were not the first people to come to massachusetts oh, you um, in 1614 say. a european explorer kidnapped 20 wampanoag men from the village of patuxet now present-day plymouth and seven native men and women from the village of nosset which is on the cape these individuals were brought across the atlantic to spain and then brought to the caribbean and sold into slavery um some sources will say indentured servitude we're going to call it what it is, slavery. Indentured servitude is just a way to kind of make it sound it's a fancy somewhat name. nicer. But, like, these people didn't sign a contract agreeing to work for anybody. They were kidnapped from their homes, put on a fucking boat, and shipped across the Atlantic. Um, one of the natives from the Patuxet village was a young man by the name of Tisquantum, also known as Squanto. Squanto. Yes, the Squanto. I remember Squanto. I feel like we everybody knows Squanto. We learned about Squanto and Squanto has a really fucking sad life, actually. So Squanto was taken to London, where he was first to work work as a slave for prominent families. Until around 1619, he managed to make his way back to Patuxet, only to find that his family had died from a horrible disease known as the Great Dying. Um, and the great dying is something that we're going to get into in just a minute. Um, but essentially it was a massive epidemic of some type of disease. that's kind of 
argued by multiple historians as to what it may have been exactly, but it was um, likely either smallpox, consumption, or influenza brought over by French fur traders and European explorers who then infected the tribes. Because, I mean, think about it. If you're bringing nasty diseases with your, like, rotten food-eating European or English self over from, you know, 15th century England, bringing the flu and everything over to this country that has never seen viruses like that before, it's going to completely wipe out an entire village because their bodies don't know how to fight it. Um, but Squanto would be one of the first natives that, to greet the Puritans when they arrived uh, a year later in 1620. Because of his time in England, he actually had very well-spoken English. Uh, and the Puritans noted when they arrived that they were surprised that somebody spoke such well English when they first arrived there. And it's kind of very much brushed over in history as to how he had such well-spoken English. I remember as a kid, I feel like they just said like, oh, it was because of, you know, fur traders and other explorers. You know, they weren't like, yeah, this guy was kidnapped and taken from his home for several years and then managed to find his way back, only to find out that his entire family had died from an epidemic virus that had killed half of his village. That is fucking horrible. Really fucking sad. So between 1610 and 1619, most of the Poconoquette, Patuxet, Narragansett and other villages all died from diseases brought over by the European traders and French fur traders, just like all of the, all of, and like Canadians, all of that. And uh, between ni- um, 19, between 1615 and 1619, this was specifically known as the Great Dying. Um, like I said, it's very much debated what these plagues could have been. Some people, like, I've heard, I read everything from fucking leprosy to malaria to the common cold. It could have been really anything. Or a weird cocktail of a few of them. Um, But either way, these decimated the tribe's populations, literally cutting some of them completely in half. Or, like, even two-thirds of the populations were lost in some cases. Um... Some modern writers will claim that this is like, uh, instead, it's not actually like influenza or any type of disease that was brought over by Europeans. It was actually a type of almost like Giardia, which is a bacterial infection from drinking water or food that's polluted with animal feces or urine. Um, But this is likely not the case, as Giardia is very rarely fatal to any humans. And it's also very likely that a disease like that could decimate entire villages so quickly. But I felt like it was important to put, put it in there and then, you know, talk about how that's very much likely not the case. But um, historians all do agree that this massive epidemic happening just prior to the Puritans' arrival in 1620 was a large reason as to why the Europeans so easily were able to overpower the natives of specifically the Patuxet Village, which is now modern-day Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, because their numbers were just so low and they really didn't have enough time to recover their population, um, they were not really able to properly defend themselves. So, who were the pilgrims and what the fuck is a Puritan? Do you know? Um, a fucking guy that came over on the Mayflower and took what wasn't theirs. All right. Okay. Close enough. Uh, Well, in 15th century England, 
the crown was in charge of everything, including the church. And that was the way that it had been for centuries. And you were not allowed to disobey the crown or you were to be drawn and quartered or beheaded or whatever type of weird fucking torture Great Britain liked to do at that time. Because I don't know if you know, but ever since medieval times or, you know, pretty much their entire history, they have some insane torture styles. They yeah, were very I'm creative. Upset with that. Very fucking creative. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of their torture styles when we get into King Philip's War. Okay. And what they did their, to their prisoners. But um, essentially, you were not allowed to disobey the crown. And at the time, King George was, you know, getting, or King James, I believe it was at the, the start of this, was uh, getting real flashy with his church, you know. It was, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. So they were very much into, like, gold, you know, and robes and fucking incense. It was was getting very flashy. And the Puritans were a very pious group of English Protestants, which is kind of like a weird offshoot of Christianity, but it is not to be confused with Catholicism because apparently, and I'm saying this as someone who fucking has been to church maybe four times in their life, apparently they're very different, even though I think they're just two sides of the same fucking coin. Um, Hey, you're not not wrong. (laughs) Um, but these, like I said earlier, these motherfuckers were so pious. Um, they actually banned colored clothing because they thought that it was impure and that anything frivolous like that was a sign of the devil. Basically anything that would have brought you like the slimmest amount of happiness in life or made you smile was impure to the Puritans. Um, Puritans was actually a, like a derogatory term for them because they were so pure um, they like to call themselves, you know, like the the Protestants or um, they actually when they were coming over on the Mayflower, they referred to themselves as the saints. They were so saintly coming over I was and finding say, a new world. So saintly. Um, but they were very much a fire and brimstone type people. They believed in a vengeful God. They believed that, you know, just because we were born, that was the original sin. We all have to pay for that sin for the rest of our lives by repenting for it going to church every Sunday and Saturday and, you know, being a very, 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 very good, good person. Mm. Following the ways no of the Lord. No comment. Um, so, you know, little to say they were not happy with England's Roman Catholic Church and their way of doing things. However, it was literally illegal to go against the crown, so you couldn't just not show up to church on Sunday. You had to fucking be there. Um, so they really didn't like this. And the Puritans were trying to find a way out of England so that they were able to practice their own religious teachings and just live their life the way that they wanted to. Um, now, they basically just didn't want someone to, they essentially just didn't want to be put in jail for not wanting to agree with what their government decided was the religion of their town. Which is so fucked up to yeah. think about. And it's, yeah, weird it's how it's, weird. it's also weird how it seems to be repeating itself. <laughs> I just think that, like, if we lived in a time where we were forced to go to church, like, I'm just so glad that, like. Dude, we fucking might be with the way things are going. <laughs> no, I'm not going. <laughs> you can't make me. Uh, I mean, if it's that or get drawn and quartered or, you know, put in the stocks in the center of town for people to throw rotten vegetables at you. I'd rather that than go to church, I think. 
Yeah, I guess so. Depends on if it was a hot day out or not. Uh, but yeah, so the Puritans wanted to find a way out of England. So some actually fled to Holland where, you know, it wasn't illegal to practice whatever religion you wanted. Um, but there was a small group of about 44 Puritans that decide to try to make a go of it in a new world, like a lot of Europeans were doing at that time. Because essentially what you could do is you could go up to the crown and say, hey, I'd like to lease some land in a new world. And they would say, sure, give me some money and I'll give you a ship and you're going to go here on this map. Now, did the, the crown have a say in leasing this land to these people? No. Had they been to this place before? No. But this was the time when Great Britain was just trying to get anything and everything for Great Britain. So this is, you know, where these 44 Puritans decided to get on a, uh, a little ship known as the Mayflower and uh, make a long-ass journey over here. Now, at this time, Jamestown had already been established in Virginia, but that may have well been a million miles away as, you know, there is a, a pretty vast gap of wilderness between Virginia and Massachusetts oh, at yeah. this time. <laughs> um, so the Puritans were basically kind of on their own. Um, they spent 66 days at sea, and it was wicked fucking shitty. Uh, basically did nothing but vomit and eat rats. Sounds fun. Um, I don't, I know it was a tiny ass boat, but like, I feel like you had to account for some people not making it. Oh, they absolutely did not make it. There were some people that didn't make it and they just got thrown over into the sea. There was one baby that was born on the ship. I remember hearing about that yeah, in like the third too. grade. Yeah. I don't remember that child's name. But I do know that they uh, ran out of food about halfway through their voyage and just ate rodents and bugs off of the ship and, you know, apparently didn't think to fish. I was going to say they didn't fucking go fishing. Uh, not very fucking smart. No, they're not very capable. Um, but, you know, eventually they, after, you know, 66 days of, you know, shitting and vomiting over the side of a gross ass wooden boat and eating rats and bugs and stale moldy bread uh they landed on cape cod not plymouth beach and well, not on that rock if you're trying to get to plymouth from a certain angle from yeah Great Britain, and essentially you're you, gonna hit the fucking cape. if you look at where plymouth is on a map compared to cape cod like you're gonna hit the cape first you have to go like around and in yes exactly um so the first um the first like landing they actually decided to do a little exploration and the man who led this first exploration off the ship was some dude. You may know him. William Bradford. Come on up. Ding, 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 ding. You're our winner. Except you're not. Except you have a whole you ass. You get Toledo Genocide. He had a whole ass fucking hotel named after him on Water Street in Plymouth. Yeah. 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 Well, we're going to get into why he's a shitty dude. So they arrived actually in winter. So they landed on the beach and saw nothing but the remnants of the Wampanoag summer villages. So it was just like the bare frames of their wigwams and, you know, kind of like, you know, obviously signs of civilization, but they had all moved inland to the forest for the winter. Um, so when the pilgrims first arrived, they did notate that they saw signs of civilization, but no people and just kind of started to kind of make their way around the beach. Uh, within an hour of landing, because it was, um, they did have people who were like kind of writing records of everything that they saw. So we do have a lot of um, 
thankfully a lot of like historical records to go off of for this but within a within the first hour of landing on the beach explorers actually came upon a fenced off area with stone markers that to them looked like a burial ground and while they left the the graves inside the fenced off area alone they did actually dig up several graves outside of the fenced off area and removed the offerings that were there with the bodies that were left for them to take to the afterlife which was a bunch of food and a couple other things and they brought this back to the mayflower for everyone to eat so within an hour of arriving they decimated graves graves and stole the spiritual offerings and ate them that they just some bad fucking themselves up they set up this area to be haunted as fuck yeah. from the second they landed L- literally literally fucking like 15 minutes of landing like you're just gonna fucking curse us all yep that's it that's the bridgewater triangle when i read that that in, is all um, you the need book to know. i had i was like well that's it right fucking there like this fucking first hour they're on here in william bradford's desecrating graves and stealing the offerings and eating them we so it just—it also just shows you how little respect they had for the people who were already there that had clearly already had a well-established society, which is just you know it just goes to kind of it it sets the tone for this the rest of this episode which is not much left but you know and all of our next episode. However, on a lighter note, um, I did have like later on in the book, um, later on in that exploration that day actually. William Bradford does get a little bit of karma coming back to him because as they're walking through the forest, he gets caught in a slipknot trap that actually snaps a branch in his face. And it was like a small game trap that had been left by the Wampanoag and he got caught in it. Uh-huh. So I'm like, haha, fuck he's, you, dude. He's got a whole ass fucking monument in um, Burial Hill in Plymouth. He should not. Uh, so yeah, joke's on you, you genocide-loving motherfucker. I'm glad that you got caught in one of their traps, but... Yeah, he kind of screwed us all over by desecrating their graves. So, obviously, from the moment the Puritans landed, the Wampanoag's life were going to change forever. Um, They, once again, did end up taking slaves and sending them back to Europe, and that would be a common thing that would happen. Um, They would often take women and children and just ship them off to the Caribbean for a hefty sum, which was great. Because, of course, you know, what do you do when you come to a new country? You take all the resources, including the people that live there, and find a way to make a profit off of it. What else did you do? Yeah, I don't know. Just maybe exist or go back to where you came from. That makes too much sense. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, essentially what happens, uh, obviously everybody knows the fucking story of the first Thanksgiving. I'm not going to get into that. But it's not necessarily how it happened yes the wampanoags did help the puritans through that that first winter because they arrived like right at the start of winter um but they were not as welcoming as everyone made it out to be they really simply just tolerated the puritans as a way of kind of helping their own political status between tribes they saw it as a way to possibly get more goods and have better opportunities for trading. Um, the pilgrims, colonists, Puritans, whoever you want to call them, also had guns, which 
Wampanoags did not have access to. They had gotten some from fur traders before, but they needed gunpowder, which they also had. Made hunting very easy and also protecting their land very easy. So they tried, they originally saw these people coming to their land as a way that they could, you know, possibly make it kind of work for everyone to be there. You know, their way of life was that, you know, Earth was a gift. All of the things on it were a gift for all of us. So it was bountiful enough for everyone to share in it, which unfortunately is not the way that the Puritans thought. Um, now, this is where we're going to end this episode, and we're going to pick pretty much right up at the King Philip's War. I'll get into, like, the main characters of King Philip's War. We'll talk about Metacomet. We'll talk about his wife. We'll talk about his wife's sister, who was actually a very prominent sachem of another tribe um, who plays a big role in uh, King Philip's War. She leads a lot of battles. Uh, we will talk about uh, William Bradford a little bit more. We will get into the town of Taunton, Massachusetts. Because uh, Taunton and Plymouth play. No, Amanda, say it right. Taunton. 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 But yeah, we'll get into Taunton, Massachusetts uh, and Plymouth because they both play uh, pretty big roles in the war. And we will get into some uh, some beheading, some drawing and quartering, some mass executions, some kidnapping of some colonists for ransom. And cool. uh, yeah, All some, right. uh, some really uh, some really great and uh, horrible stories about one of the, or actually not one of the, the bloodiest war in America besides the Civil War and America's first genocide because there was more than one genocide in the U.S., guys, if you don't know. It's been many. Well, I've sure learned a lot. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed. I really wanted to really set the scene for you guys. And I also, like I said many times, you know, the Wampanoag, their their history is very much glossed over. Even when you talk about Bridgewater Triangle, it's always, oh, well, because of King Philip's War, they cursed the land. But some people don't even know that piece of it. So. Ex- exactly. Some people don't even know that piece of it. So I really <laughs> wanted to bring bring some kind of explanations as to why, you know, why things are so freaking weird. But this episode is long enough as it is, so I guess we'll see you on the next one. So stay spooky. Stay scary. And stay safe. Bye. Bye.